Well, welcome to Spark. We're so glad you're all here. Um, feel free to sit around the table and eat and partake of all the goodness that is for us. We're actually going to be talking a little bit about hospitality tonight in Genesis, so feel free to sit and eat if you want to. And if you have taken the places of the straight-A students in the front row, you can also know that I will not demote your grade later on today if you move back to the table to eat at any point during the sermon. All right, uh, let me pray for our time together and we'll get started. Uh, Lord, we just bless you, God, for this opportunity to come together. We're so thrilled that we get to study your word in community and just partake a little bit of this feast you've laid before us. We pray right now, Lord, that you would remove any distractions from any one of us, God, that um, you would remove me out of the way from any message you want to give tonight, and that um, our time together would glorify you and build your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in our Genesis series, and for those of you who were with us last week, the title of Kevin's message was Private Parts, and um, that was Genesis 17, and we are going to roll right into Genesis 18 tonight. By the way, it was really fun to watch Kevin give that message to this community because I've watched him give it to high school students. And they giggle and laugh and are loud and it's funny. And you guys like squirmed uncomfortably. And it was hilarious to watch like high school students can handle the material, but you couldn't. So uh, that was great. So really thrilled with all of that. Um, Okay, so tonight we're going to actually dive right into two chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapter 18 and 19. And the reason why we're going to hang out in both of those chapters at once is because they actually, I think, go together. Um, rather than should be separated in any way. So we're going to try to read a little bit of these passages together. If you would like a Bible, we have some right over there, nice blue Bibles on the file cabinet if anyone wants any. But you can also use your electronic devices, and I will pretend to know that you're not checking the Niner score. So um, you can open up, but I'll also have the text on screen for you. So I'm going to title this message, The Three Visitors, but it's also Abraham's Descendants versus Sodom's Residents. And that's what I think a lot of is going on here in this little passage. So we're going to go together and look. Here's the text, Genesis 18, beginning in verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Now we're going to stop as we read along and just point out a few different things. That's kind of how we're going to do our, our teach tonight. You guys ready for that? Cool. One of the first things I notice is that it's the heat of the day and Abraham is sitting at the entrance to his tent. And that though it's in the middle of the day, at the heat of the day, he sees these three men standing there traveling through that he, they really shouldn't be out during that time of day. It's too hot. And for those of you who've been down in the desert of Israel with us or in any desert, you know that that's really the worst time of day to be traveling. It's not the time of day when you want to be expending any additional energy. But back here in this wonderful world, Abraham's sitting there in the heat of the day, and he sees three men, and he perceives them to be three men. By the way, a lot of times as we read through this, um, as Christians, as we read through looking back, we'll say, ah, this is a picture of the trilogy, the trilogy, the Trinity, got that? Or the trilogy, all of those things. There's another book coming soon, Uh, the Trinity. Uh, We also see that maybe people are going to say, oh, see, one's the Lord, and then there's these angels. And two of the men will be referred to as angels when we get to Genesis 19. But in this case, right here, they're referred to as the three men. And Abraham perceives them to be no special, no, no more special than any other visitors that might be walking through in the day. And also when the two angels visit Sodom, 
the people living there perceive them to be two men. They don't perceive them to be extra shiny, extra special, slightly floating on the water angels. They perceive them to be human beings. Now, as Abraham is sitting there in the heat of the day and he sees these three men standing nearby, Abraham then hurries. He runs to greet them and he brings them, he bows low and he takes this posture of humility. And at this point, if you'll remember again, Kevin's message from last week, we should be a little bit amused because Abraham has just had major surgery very late in life, surgery that might lay him low to the ground for more than one day. And the rabbis discuss that this is probably the third day after that major surgery, and Abraham should be recovering, but instead he's sitting at the entrance to his tent waiting to greet and receive visitors. But this is the first instance of anyone ever really visiting the sick, and so we have this beautiful picture of God visiting the sick. So here comes the Lord, and he is going to come and visit Abraham with these two others, and God is going to visit Abraham as he's recovering from his surgery. And this is what Abraham says. If I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. He takes on that beautiful servant posture. Let a little water be brought that you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. And Abraham uses these really humble offerings. Like, let me just fetch a little water for you. Just get a little morsel for you to eat. You can just rest for a little bit and then you can be on your way. In the ancient Near East during this time, as people would be walking through sort of nomadic type settlements, greeting a stranger as they're walking through is the first initiation of foreign policy. This person can be a threat to you and your family. You don't know what their intentions are. You're not quite sure if you should welcome them into your home. But as you're welcoming them in, you're immediately evening the playing field. You're starting to extend hospitality to someone who was a stranger. And now there's a different social component going on as opposed to just watching scary people walk by and wondering whether or not they might be scoping out your wife or your camels and livestock and your fancy tent which was still the case of Bedouin making rides and raiding on one another up until the late 1800s, early 1900s, as Mark Twain and others would talk about um, experiencing in the ancient Near East, in Israel at that time, Palestine. So they say, okay, Abraham makes these offerings very well. They answer, do as you say. And their response is very terse, and they're saying, okay, go ahead and do that. So here's Abraham. He hurries into the tent to Sarah, quick. He says, get three sayas of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Now, three sayas of fine flour is about 50 pounds of flour. So it's not necessary for three visitors, unless they're incredibly portly, and there's no explanation of that in the text. Instead, we have this abundant response of Abraham to say, let's get this large amount of flour, and let's, remember remember I said, let's give him a little morsel. I want to give him tons of stuff. So we're going to get this large abundance of flour, and I want you to knead that together and start to make that work. Now, the words there for choice or fine flour are the same ones that are going to be commanded in Leviticus and in Exodus for keeping and bringing the bread to the tabernacle for the offering to the Lord. So we have this beautiful picture of this first instance of when God is going to sit and sort of sup with Abraham in this moment that this bread becomes sort of one of the symbols moving forward that even as we make those offerings in the tabernacle and in the temple, that there's a picture again of dining with the Lord. By the way, Jesus refers to this amount of flour in Matthew 13. It's quite fun. Just go ahead and read that someday. It's, it's not a large amount of flour. It's three sayas of flour. 
So then Abraham runs again to the herd, selects a choice tender calf, and gives it to the servant who hurries to prepare it. And he then brought some curds and some milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Again, Abraham takes this incredibly humble posture of a servant. I don't even deserve to eat with you. I'm going to stand at a distance. And did you notice also, too, that Abraham is not keeping kosher? He has mixed meat and dairy together right in that first section there, which is actually why still today Orthodox Jews will allow them to have, it says he brought the curds and milk and then the calf, so you can have dairy and then meat, but you can't have meat and then dairy. Like you have to have a separated time. Isn't that fun? Because, you know, you should get your rules for how you live from the Bible. That's what we all do too. Okay, so in this moment, he provides this really delicious kind of almost strained yogurt that you have at your tables, something quite similar to that, labne, and it's delicious and yummy. Yes, you guys all have liked it. It kind of tastes a little like cream cheese, but better. So good. So Abraham provides not just a little bit, he provides a ton, and he provides something lovely and beautiful, having meat at a meal, being quite a delicacy and a very rare event. And so Abraham offers a morsel, but instead prepares a lavish feast. It's kind of like when you're telling your friends that they should check out a movie. If you say over and about, oh my gosh, it's the best movie I've ever seen. It was incredible. Then they walk in with these really high expectations, right? But instead you're like, it was okay. It was good. No, but you should see it. And then their expectations are a little low and they can be pleasantly surprised. Right? This is the model of hospitality that the Bible gives us, right? So extend, don't brag, just say I'm going to offer a little, but do and bring out your very best. So hospitality should be bringing out the very best in who we are, our very best offering that we have. And by the way, some lovely pictures up here of hospitality within a Bedouin context today. And we have an upside-down taboon, like a way of baking bread over a hot fire. It kind of looks like an upside-down wok. And they could also be clay ovens, but this is what you might see today. And some really wonderful ways of preparing coffee and roasting the beans and then grinding them down. And even certain Bedouin have ways of grinding the bean in their coffee grinder that's their own rhythm, their own song. So if you were to hear, if you were a neighbor some distance away, there'd be particular songs that would say, please come, I'm making coffee, you can come eat now. And apparently there's some songs that say, stay away, this coffee's just for me right now. So maybe you can get your own, uh, your own coffee grinder and try to create your own rhythm and then see if your neighbors will come or stay away, depending upon. Maybe it might depend on how good your coffee is. I actually really like that custom because I think how wonderful that there's something built in to their kitchen utensils that is created in such a way as to draw people into their home, into their tent. And the Talmud notices all of this about Abraham. And the Talmud says, such is the way of the righteous. They promise little but perform much. Isn't that a great saying in a, a wonderful way? I just like it. Promise little but perform much. So then it continues our story. Where's your wife, Sarah? They ask him. There in the tent, he said. And then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. That's the really nice English way to say that um, she no longer participated in a female monthly event. That's the Hebrew. Okay, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out, and it's literally shriveled up, my Lord is old, so Abraham's old, 
Will I now have this pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? And I love this scene because here's where God is going to do a little marriage counseling. Because what does Sarah actually say? She says, I'm worn out, I'm shriveled up, but he's old. And now I'm going to have this pleasure. And so God's like, I'm not going to repeat that because that might cause some marital discord and I need them to hook up after this. So how about we'll just say that Sarah said she's old, which is sort of kind of what she's saying, but it is nice that God sort of edits, tactfully edits Sarah's version of what she said when presenting it to Abraham. You don't think that's hilarious? I think that's hilarious. Total marriage counseling right there in the Bible. Well, see, I think what I hear her saying right? And then start to reflect back for the other partner and try to place it in a way that the person can understand and receive. So she didn't really say you were old. She just meant like wise, right? Like, so he's like softening all this stuff. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. And in that moment, you should just take great joy in the fact that God does not gloss over our failings It's okay that Sarah laughed. She's lying about it. And God's even going to still bring about the promise. So for those of us who have in our minds that our promises are fulfilled from God only if we get everything right. And that somehow God can't manage the fact that we're all sinning kind of all the time. Just know that your Bible's pretty okay with all that. So when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. All nations on earth will be blessed through him. That includes all of us. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So Abraham's descendants will do righteousness and justice. It's not just Abraham that's responsible to do righteousness and justice. It is Abraham's descendants. Because you see in this command right here, in this bit of promise, I have chosen him, God says, so that he will direct his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness, to do justice. So the descendants of Abraham will be known by these two things. And then the Lord said... The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I am going to go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, for those of you who've been in our Genesis series since the beginning, when's the last time you remember God saying, I'm going to go down and check that out? Anyone? Tower of Babel. Yay. You're so quiet. Tower of Babel. Good job. When God said, I'm going to go down... And I'm going to see what these people are up to. And the funny part is, again, that they're building a tower to get so high as to get to God. And God's actually still even going to go down to even see the top of the tower. But now God is going to go down and investigate if the outcry is exactly what he has heard. So the men turn away and start towards Sodom, those two men. And now later on, they'll be referred to as angels. But Abraham remains standing before the Lord. And now Abraham steps forward, stepped forward and said. Now this, ver- this word in Hebrew for stepped forward, it's likened unto what you would do in a court setting. 
You're going to step forward and take a stand and defend. So Abraham steps forward and starts to, with the creator of the universe, with the judge of all, negotiate. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? And in this moment, Abraham starts to negotiate. He starts to do something that none of us would ever think we would want to do, particularly as he started out so humble. I'll get you a morsel. I'll sit to the side. You guys eat. God says, I'm going to have to go and check this out, and I might have to destroy the place. Um, excuse me. And he comes and stands right before him, steps up to that role, and starts to take on the role of prophet. Then Abraham says this, far be it from you to do such a thing. Now he's just going to go right back into God's reputation. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, okay, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Salmon, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. So Abraham now takes on the role of prophet. And in the next chapter of Genesis chapter 20, he will be referred to as a prophet. So he's practicing. It's kind of like, all right, Abraham, I'm going to go and I'm going to take these people out. Abraham, will you be able to stand up and be righteous and be faithful? And will you intercede for these people, even the wicked? And he he does, he intercedes and begs for mercy even upon those that are unmerciful. So Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if there are only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. Again, this sort of supplicating before the Lord. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I won't do it if I find 30. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me just speak once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Have you ever had those moments where you've started to beg God? Did you get real creative with the ask? Good. You're in good biblical company. I was living in Los Angeles when that huge Northridge earthquake hit. I was living by myself in an apartment. And when that earthquake hit, I knew exactly what it was because I'd lived through the big earthquake up here, the Loma Prieta quake up here. And so I immediately jumped out of bed and I'm standing, and it went for a long time, y'all, and it was dark because it was like about four in the morning, standing in the doorway and the closet's opening in front of me and the entire kitchen is pouring out every object on the floor. And I'm by myself living in LA and I started to pray. And my prayer went, God, for the sake of a righteous college group up at Bel Air Presbyterian Church, please do not make us all fall into the ocean because that's what it really felt like. I was in Santa Monica, and I was like, and this prayer, this begging prayer immediately came to mind. There was so much begging and negotiating going on, and I didn't know if there were more righteous people in Los Angeles, but I knew that there were at least about 30 to 50 at this college group, and that for at least that, we shouldn't fall into the ocean. I don't know what your begging moment has been, but that was the moment when these very words came to mind. I was like, please, God, don't do it. And God's going to now go and investigate. The angels are going to go down. 
Now, when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, we can think about these wonderful old films that apparently, this was quite a theme at some point. Old Hollywood loved making films about Sodom and Gomorrah. I found some on YouTube, decided not to make you sit through them. Um, But this, hilarious, not suitable for children, right? Yes, good. No, it's true. I'm sure Sodom and Gomorrah was not suitable for children. But as soon as I saw that, then I saw this, which is a Bible greatest heroes legend hosted by Charlton Heston, and it's about Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's clearly that they've created this for children because it's this fancy cartoon. So I'm not sure at what point the story flipped to being somehow suitable for children, Um, but uh, yeah, let's go dive into Genesis 19. I believe Genesis 19 lays right with all we've just read in Genesis 18. The two angels now arrive at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Where was Abraham sitting? Entrance to his tent. And here's Lot, his, his descendant, his nephew, sitting at the gateway to the city. And here come the visitors. And when he sees them, Lot sees them, he gets up to meet them. He bows down with his face to the ground, just like Abraham did, getting up to meet and bowing down to the ground. My Lord, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. Not a tent, but a house. And you can wash your feet, spend the night, and then on your, go on your way early in the morning. Similar offerings. Nope, they answered, we're going to spend the night in the square. But Lot insisted so strongly that he did go with, that they did go with him and enter his house. And you can almost sense that Lot's like, please don't do that. I live in a bad neighborhood, right? There's something in that text where he's like, no, let's please come. He's insisting so strongly. He prepares a meal for them and he breaks bread with baking bread without yeast. Maybe they were full from their feast earlier, but what Lot offers them is kind of measly. It's not so great. Right? It's not the same type of bread. It's bread without yeast. It's, it's just matzah. It's able to be pulled together really quick. It's not these amazing offerings that would be for the priests, for those in the temple. And so Lot kind of pulls together a quick little meal. And before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surround the house. And they called a lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. And you all know what that means. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind them and said, No, my brothers, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. You can do what you like to them, but don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. This whole story is about hospitality. This whole story is about what we do when strangers come into our midst, into our communities, and how our community will respond to the stranger. How we will take care of those who are strangers in our midst. And Lot, who's been living there for a while, says to them, my brothers don't do this. And they respond, get out of our way. This fellow, referring to Lot, came here as a foreigner, as a gare, as a stranger. And you can listen to Kevin's message about the stranger from a couple weeks ago. And now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. And they kept on bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men reached out, pulled Lot back in the house, and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. Now, if we are thinking about who are the descendants of Abraham and how will the descendants of God's people be known, and when we're looking and seeing what is this other community that's there and how are they behaving, can you start to draw some immediate contrasts? Righteousness and faithfulness. And over here, a desire to abuse and to violate. 
Now, in our communities today, we talk a lot about what the sin of Sodom is. We talk a lot about what we think people have done wrong. We talk a lot about, I mean, there's words that we use for all this, but really when we look and we look to the text, Ezekiel chapter 16 even tells us the sin of Sodom is even bigger than anyone ever considered. Now, Ezekiel says in chapter 16, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. And they did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. And therefore I did away with them as you have seen. This is what the Bible tells us is the sin of Sodom. The Bible tells us that these people, unlike God's plan for the descendants of Abraham, have treated one another without any care, without any concern, without any kindness, without any hospitality. And that God has looked upon that and said, that must be destroyed. So Genesis chapter 18 through chapter 19 teaches us the following. That the descendants of Abraham are marked by their love for the stranger. If you and I are going to call ourselves followers of the Lord, if we are going to call ourselves Christian, if we are going to sit and try to in any way represent the love of God in this world, then we must be known for our love for the stranger. We must reach out and start to pull everyone close and in towards the love of God. That's Genesis 18 through 19. Because Abraham, he gets up, he runs, even though recently recovering from a surgery, provides the finest, does all these amazing things, and he makes sure that those people that visit, that he doesn't know at the beginning that there's anything special about them, that they are welcome and loved and safe and protected in his home. And Lot tries to do the same thing, but he's inside a community that won't let him love and care for the stranger and that instead is bent on abuse and violence. That's simply trying to be all about power and to not care for those that are weakest and most marginalized among us, like the stranger in our community. So the descendants of Abraham are marked by their love for the stranger. The other thing that Genesis 19, 18, 18, 19 teaches us is that hospitality is an opportunity for us to share all that God has given us, remembering that it all belongs to him. Psalm 24 says it this way, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You see, the Israelites very clearly knew, particularly as they go into the land, that all that they have is given to them exactly by God, and that it will be taken away from them if they're disobedient. That everything that we have is a gift from the Lord. Everything that we have is something God gave each one of us. When Kevin and I were praying to God for a home here in Silicon Valley, which I know sounds insane. Uh, Fortunately, this was 10 years ago, so it was less insane than that it is now. But when we were looking, we walked into this one home, our current home, and we'd looked at a couple other things and made offers, and like the counteroffer was, you know, $30,000 over asking, which meant we're going to have to pull out a dime out of our pocket, and that would be our counteroffer. So we were really out of control, and I said, Honey, I think this is the house. We walked in the house. I said, Let's pray and ask God for the house. Now, for those of you who know Kevin, he's a little bit of an introvert, so I thought he and I would stand very quietly in the corner and pray for a few minutes and ask God for the house. But instead, he turned to the real estate assistant and said, Jim, we're going to pray and ask God for this house. Did you want to pray with us? And I was like, oh my gosh, what's happening right now? And so we stood on the front porch, and the three of us held hands with with this guy, and Kevin just said, "Um, God, we'd really like this house, and if you give it to us, it's yours, and we'll use it for your glory. 
Amen. Please give to us. Amen. God gave us a house. It was amazing. There was somebody else up on the same offer, and, you know, they didn't even counter offer to us. It was just they took it. They didn't even try to get another dime, which was good because it would have been couch cushion and, like, you know, the ashtray in the car kind of opportunity. Um, and so we were just amazed at God's provision. But I've taken very seriously that prayer ever since, that it doesn't belong to me. And it doesn't belong to us, that it belongs to the Lord. And so we live our life in such a way that our house really does function a bit like a parsonage. Like in those old, old-timey movies where the pastors lived right next to the church and then everybody knew where they lived and could knock on their door in the middle of the night. Yeah, that's, we're cool with that. Because we've prayed and we've asked God to give us a little bit of his land to be responsible for. And we understand that it's not ours, that it's his. And when we get to extend hospitality to others, it's our opportunity to share what God has already shared with us. He is the ultimate host. He created this amazing, beautiful place. He put stars in the sky and sun and moon. He set the whole mood for us. It's beautiful. And he has invited us in. So it's our good duty as guests to respond to the host in kind and to continue to extend that hospitality to one another. Also Hebrews chapter 13. You guys ready for this? Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. What passage of the Bible do you think that author of Hebrews is thinking of? Absolutely Genesis 18 and 19, right? The opportunity to extend hospitality to angels unaware. What an amazing opportunity to messengers from God. The word angel in Hebrew really just means messenger. These messengers of God can come and sit in our midst, and we may not be in a community or society where people's lives are at risk if they don't come into our home, but certainly there are ways in which we can love and extend and share with one another or hurt and harm and cause violence to one another. We can find ways as we pull them into our lives, as we pull people into our conversations, to either be kind or to be hurtful. And in doing so, we reflect our Heavenly Father's love for that person, and we also can find ourselves having an angelic and amazing divine experience. Finally, The rabbis have this great story about Abraham. They said that Abraham and Sarah were so intent on welcoming guests from the north and the south and the east and the west that they would make sure that even in the heat of the day, no matter what time it was, that they would pull all four sides of their tent open so they could make sure to receive visitors from any direction. So my prayer for all of us today is that all four sides of our tents would be open. Now, I know none of you have tents. I don't think. So you're probably not going to go home and start rolling up those tents or tearing down the fences in your yard. All of that's, But find the ways where those real spiritual, emotional places in our hearts where we've built up those walls and kept people out, where we haven't allowed people to draw close to ourselves or to the Jesus that we know. Let's find ways to pull those barriers down and be ready daily to receive people from the north and the south and the east and the west from all directions and pull them closer in to our homes. It's hard work. It's not always easy. House guests don't always pick up their socks off the floor. Neither do husbands. Um, Lots of other things happen at different times when you have people sharing in your home, yes? But the benefits of finding a way to live out in the footsteps of our father Abraham and to be known and characterized as his descendants with righteousness. Um, This is a beautiful opportunity. 
pray with me now as we close. Jesus, thank you, Lord, so much for this opportunity to become more and more like you. Uh, Lord, you have extended yourself in the greatest act of hospitality, inviting us all into relationship with you. And we ask right now, Lord, that you would continue to touch our hearts, to draw us closer to you and to one another, and that this week you would help us to find ways to extend ourselves out, to welcome the foreigner, to welcome the stranger in our midst, to pull people close, closer to you by your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.